This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with psychologist Terry Lynn McKay. Based in Manitoba, Canada, Dr. McKay is the mental health director of Alavita, a LifeSpeak company, where she oversees the delivery of care for people who struggle with substance use. She also has a master's degree in neuroscience and a PhD in clinical psychology. Dr. McKay joins me today from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Terry Lynn, welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Me too. The Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, the CCESA, recently released new guidelines for alcohol consumption that are dramatically different from previous recommendations. Can you walk us through the changes? I sure can. So the previous guidelines were 10 units a week for people who are biologically female and 15 units for people who are biologically male, where it was recommended that females consume no more than two standard drinks per day and males no more than three. So when we're talking about a unit or a standard drink, that's one bottle of beer at 5% alcohol. So that wouldn't be some of the craft beers that are up around 7 to 10% now, a five ounce glass of wine or one and a half ounces of hard liquor. Now, the new guidelines take a spectrum-based approach where two units or less is considered low risk, six units or less is moderate risk, and seven or above is what they call increasingly high risk, meaning that the more you consume, the higher the risk. And the new guidelines are really saying that less is better without necessarily trying to talk about cutoff amounts. But the media really was very focused on the the cutoffs. I just want to make two other points. One point I want to make is that the guidelines are related to physical health risks. So in particular, cancer, heart disease, and risk of violence. And this is the same as having issues with substances or a substance use disorder, which are generally diagnosed by, you know, criteria within the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or the International Classification of Diseases. The other point I want to make is that these guidelines really relate to the population as a whole. Um, So lower socioeconomic status groups may experience more harm or collective or aggregate risk. And those with more protective factors people who exercise regularly, who eat healthy, who have more social connections would have a lower risk. Why such a shift from previous guidelines? Mm, That's a good question and a very common question. And the short answer is that more research is available and new statistical methods are available. So this new research looked at 25 health conditions that are common in North America and Europe and used what's called the World Health Organization Global Burden of Disease Methodology that looks at years of life lost. So when we're talking about two units, that's really the point where risk is the same as an abstainer, meaning that you have no more risk than someone who doesn't drink. And once you get to six drinks or what they would call moderate risk, that represents a 1% increase in lifetime risk. So to put that in context, that's about three months of life lost. And this is important because when people hear these cutoffs of low, moderate, and high, they ascribe meaning, but they're really just statistical distinctions that are meant to provide consumers with informed choice about what kind of risks they want to take. Because we take lots of risks in life, right? 
for other risks, we tend to be more aware of the consequences. I mean, nobody eats a Big Mac thinking that it's healthy, but they take that risk for the pleasure of the experience. Whereas with alcohol, people did think that moderate amounts of alcohol were healthy and with good reason, because that was the previous messaging. Which links back to your questions about the, the question about the shift, because some previous research used to include non-drinkers in the abstainer category, meaning people who had quit drinking, and often people quit drinking for health reasons, were included in the group of non-drinkers, which made it look like small amounts of alcohol were good for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I'm really curious to know whether you see other countries following suit with Canada's new guidelines. I do think they'll follow suit, but I think it'll be slow. But but to be honest, most countries are aligned with this, even though their guidelines might look very different. So Australia has similar guidelines, and so does the UK. Uh, though in the UK, they talk about grams of alcohol, which is more difficult to translate into standard drinks. And although the guidelines in the US are a little bit higher, they actually come with a lot of the same messaging. So the messaging is that alcohol consumption is associated with a variety of short and long-term health risks, including cardiac and cancer risks, that the risks of these harm increase with the amount of alcohol you drink, and that for some conditions like cancer, the risk increases even at very low levels of alcohol consumption, so even less than one drink. And the U.S. guidelines recommend that women drink no more than one per day with a day off per week, which is really the same as the Canadian guidelines. So the U.S. guidelines are in place until 2025. So we'll see what happens then. But a lot of countries are are actually aligned with these guidelines, even though it might seem like their guidelines are a little bit higher. As a psychologist and the mental health director of a substance use program and someone who, you know, has admittedly said they enjoy wine, as I do as well, you've said that these new guidelines can be difficult for some people to ingest. How, how so? Well, I think they're hard to ingest, not pun not intended, but because alcohol has a lot of short term benefits and drinking can be very pleasurable. And like a lot of people, I felt like I was fine because I didn't have what psychologists would call functional impairment, meaning it wasn't having a negative impact on my work or relationships. But as I get older, I'm more concerned about health risks like cancer and heart disease. I mean, as much as I don't want to know this, alcohol is a level one carcinogen. It's in the same category as tobacco and asbestos. And the contribution to things like breast and colon cancer is clear. We know that half of all alcohol cancers in the World Health Organization European region were caused by light and moderate drinking. And the World Heart Federation actually released a brief in 2022 saying that no amount of alcohol is good for your heart. So that whole thing that we were told for years and that so many of us still believe is that a glass of red wine is good for your heart. Not true. Not true. The, I mean, the reality is, is that as you increase your amount of alcohol consumption, you're increasing your risks of cardiac events, of stroke. And, you know, there was a lot of information about the Mediterranean diet and about resveratrol. The reality is you have to drink a heck of a lot of red wine to get enough of that chemical compound to make a difference. And so, yeah, and my dad actually died of a heart attack when he was 58. So I really start to, started to look at things 
like diet at that time and moved to sort of a plant-based whole foods diet, but I was still like slinging back the liquor without as much awareness about how it impacts my, my heart and my health. How has this impacted your own relationship with alcohol? It's definitely moved me towards creating awareness about how much I'm consuming and having to make decisions about, is this pleasure worth the risk? And again, I think there's a lot of things that we do in life that come with some element of risk. And the real idea behind these guidelines wasn't to create dissent. It's really just about informed choice to let the public know what the health risks are. And this may be a little off track, but I think the biggest impact for me is starting to recognize how it steals pleasure from the next day. And I'm not just talking about hangovers. Have you, have you ever heard of the book um, Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke? So I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. So she's a psychiatrist at Stanford and she does a really good job, you know, coming from a neuro background, she does a really good job at describing down regulation, which is basically the, the process that happens when you consume alcohol or you consume drugs or you look at pornography or you are looking at your smartphone a lot. We all get this influx of a neurotransmitter. So we tend to know of dopamine is the most common neurotransmitter, but there's also neurotransmitters like GABA and serotonin and norepinephrine. And what happens is that our body wants to be in a state of a balance. And so it starts to become less responsive to those chemicals. She talks about it like gremlins that kind of jump on one side of the scale that tip the balance. And you need to wait for those gremlins to come off in order to be back to a state of normalcy. So if you drink a lot the morning after, even if you don't have a hangover, certainly as I get older, I'm starting to notice more of a neurotransmitter deficit. So I start to notice just feeling a little low all day. And so is that worth the pleasure that I get from consuming alcohol the night before? I mean, alcohol is such a huge part of the way that people socialize and bond with each other. So, you know, and sort of envisioning not doing that may seem pretty inconceivable to people. Have you been hearing that anecdotally? Definitely. I mean, I've heard a lot of different kinds of sentiments reflected about these guidelines. And understand that people may not want to hear these things. I mean, I've sat and watched a number of people I know who have had cancer drink and nobody wants unsolicited advice. And unfortunately, we're living in a world where, you know, science is not fact. And there's a lot of skepticism about information and it threatens something we love to do, something that makes people really happy. I mean, I was not very keen on where science went with sugar either. When I was a kid, we ate cookies and cake without little thought to the health risks. But, you know, science evolves. You know, so again, the point of these guidelines was not to upset people. It's public health information. And people were really upset. I remember when it came out in the news and one of the stations I was listening to were interviewing people on the street. And it really ran the gamut from, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I've been cutting back on my drinking too. This is a giant conspiracy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, people in the middle saying, oh, next week, another study will come out to say yeah. that, you know, this isn't true. I mean, people just don't really believe what they're told anymore, it seems like. <laughs> yes, I know. I've heard that too. You know, it's like skinny jeans and avocados. Pretty soon, we <laughs> this will just be old news. But, you know, these these guidelines were really based on robust scientific 
uh, evidence. So a lot more meta-analytic studies, which means studies that look at a lot of studies. So a lot of times you'll hear in the news the results from just one study and it gets hyped up. But this is really the result of many, many, many studies over the years and looking at really scientifically robust statistics from researchers that have been doing this for a long time. Do you think that this is having an impact on people's drinking habits? It's a good question, and I'm not sure. I think I'm too close to it because I'm not sure that people drink in the same way around me (laughs) as they do others. Have you seen any changes in people's drinking habits, or what have you heard from your friends? I have. I have. I have friends who have just stopped drinking completely, and I think they had stopped prior to this sort of the guidelines being released. It could be just the the age group that I'm in. You know, as you said, as you get older, you start to look at how you feel the next day and what the health implications might be. Or you have a family member who died of something and you don't want to die of that. So it could be that. But I definitely have friends who said to me, I'm 100% cutting back after these results came out, the study came out. Yeah. And I think, you know, the guidelines specifically for some people may not change their behavior, but I think the communication avenues that reflect the information will. So there's more um, information like podcasts that are coming out about it that actually speak to more immediate drawbacks. So Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford, did a podcast on alcohol where he talks about how alcohol impacts your stress levels. It impacts your gut microbiome. It It impacts your skin and your mood and your sleep. And these are more immediate salient outcomes that people are probably more attuned to. And I think too, with my age demographic, I think about a lot of women sort of in the, the perimenopausal or menopausal are starting to think about, you know, hormone replacement therapies and, and what those do for, for cancer risk and the research on that. But again, not thinking about actually the research on alcohol shows that it is more related to cancer and in particular breast cancer than some of the hormone replacement therapies. Yeah, it's it's really interesting when you're going through perimenopause and you know you you often feel quite hot even if it's not exactly a hot flash. And alcohol makes you feel really hot. And so a lot of my friends are saying, "Oh, I don't I don't drink anymore because or I drink a lot less now or, you know, or I'm not going to drink tonight because I know that I'll be really hot tonight and I'll probably get a hot flash or night sweats." Yeah, it's interesting. You've said that these new guidelines offer an opportunity to frame alcohol consumption under the broader umbrella of health rather than looking at alcohol use as like a disorder. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, historically, when we thought about people who had to watch their alcohol consumption, it was people who had a problem, people who couldn't control their use or who were suffering with a negative consequence. With this new information, I think it means that we have to start thinking about a broader spectrum of risk. You never hear of someone getting cancer and think, I bet they got it because they drank too much. And, you know, people I know will eat their granola, they'll do their yoga, they're doing their meditation and then drink a Cosmo or a craft beer without thinking about it as harming health. I think it also puts an onus on health authority and health authorities and alcohol suppliers to inform the public about risks like we do with cigarettes. So, you know, compared to tobacco at 10 drinks a week for women, it's the same as having 10, you know, 10 drinks, the same as having 10 cigarettes. And so Ireland is actually the first country 
that will require any alcohol products sold in Ireland to carry warning labels. And these warning labels will read things like drinking alcohol causes liver disease. And there's a direct link between alcohol and fatal cancer. So if you think about that, like your Guinness having a health label, um, and they did try it in Canada as well. They did a trial in the Yukon where they found that it actually decreased sales by about 7%. So again, you know, there's a lot of controversy around this because the governments do, a lot of governments do rely on revenues from alcohol sales. But then there's the balance of informing the public and, you know, epidemiological public health and safety. How have these new guidelines impacted your work with people struggling with substance use? Well, I see more and more people looking to change their relationship with substances. And we use that terminology because it means not depending on alcohol for mood regulation, not having to drink when everyone else is, being able to stop once you start it. So this is a, this is a problem for a lot of people is that they may plan to have one or two that night and all of a sudden it's five and they feel terrible the next day. So people are looking more at wanting to reduce. So being in the business of health and well-being, you need to respond to that need. So I work with people to meet any goal they may have, whether that maybe going from heavy drinking to abstinence or going from five units a week to two. So, you know, I see a lot of moms, for example, who are struggling with the demands of home and work life post pandemic, sort of the emotional labor of being the planner for the household who are drinking a half a bottle to a bottle of a night. And they may be doing all the other things for their health and well-being, And then their only relief from the day is alcohol. So again, people that would be more in what we would think of as a normative category of consuming alcohol, wanting to look at it and examine it and change it. If someone listening, you know, is looking to reduce their consumption, where can they start? I would start with, I mean, for anything, you need a why. You know, why would I do this? Why do I consume alcohol? What function does it serve? Sort of what are the triggers? Why do I crave alcohol? So when we think about um, harm reduction strategies, we generally think about things like safe injection sites, but harm reduction is basically any step in a positive direction. So I can just run through, would it be helpful for me just to run through some specific behavior techniques that people can use? Yes, I, yes, definitely. So the first is about intention. So even planning the amount of a substance you'll consume in advance and sticking to that plan. So maybe it's, I want to consume only one drink every hour. So every hour you set an alarm on your phone and that's when you're sort of allowed to have another drink. You know, I'm going to an event tonight. And so that's my plan is that I'm going to drink one an hour, but I'm not just going to arrive there and see what happens. I'm going to have an intention for what I'm going to consume tonight. And then things like tracking your substance use to create more awareness about your pattern. So we know about tracking, you know, people track their calories, people track their steps. And often when you track, you find that you're drinking more than you think you are, particularly when you start looking at units rather than drinks. So if you go to a restaurant and have a nine ounce glass of wine, that's actually two units where people will say, oh, I only had one drink. Eating and hydrating is a big part of it. Eating is really important because it slows down the impact of alcohol in your system. Having a glass of water between every drink, 
consuming lower alcohol content drinks. So, you know, you could mix a little bit of wine with soda water as a spritzer. You could mix in more of a, of a soda of any kind to a scotch to make it less alcoholic. And then I think, you know, starting to undo associations. A lot of us have a lot of associations with drinking and that would be positive and negative. So when you're watching TV, whenever somebody has something negative happen to them, the first thing that they do in a lot of TV shows is go and get a drink. So it's associated with going to a hockey game. I'm from Canada, so I'm using hockey game as an example, (laughs) or to a baseball game or a football game. It's associated with New Year's Eve, it's associated with Christmas festivities, it's associated with, um, you know, maybe the end of the day and getting home and having a drink, it's associated with going out for dinner, it's associated with making dinner. And so when you start to undo associations, and now have experiences without alcohol being involved, even from a neurobiological basis, it starts to undo those connections that you have with alcohol. Changing your habit. Exactly. And then I would say, you know, even having awareness about whether you're consuming substances to enhance pleasurable experiences versus to reduce painful emotions. So, you know, usually when people start consuming alcohol, it's to enhance pleasurable experiences. And then often as time goes on, it really is to get rid of uncomfortable emotions, even if those uncomfortable emotions are just boredom or stress or loneliness. And so just having more awareness of why you're consuming. You know, we saw a huge increase in mental health challenges during the pandemic and now post-pandemic. How do you think that the pandemic has impacted people's relationships with alcohol? Well, we know through a lot of research that the pandemic increased substance use in all forms. And, you know, some of the reasons for that is that the lines were blurred between work and home life. People had a really high degree of loss. So loss in terms of autonomy, financial losses, relationships ending, jobs ending, losing people they love to COVID. And I would say, you know, arguably the two most important variables to humans are uncertainty and isolation. Those are the two things that really we don't cope very well with. I mean, we put people in isolation as punishment. So, you know, people really turn to substances as a way to cope with this uncertainty, loss, and isolation. Let's talk about loneliness, which is something that, you know, is being considered, quote unquote, an epidemic these days. How does loneliness have an impact on people's way of consuming alcohol? Yeah, I think this is a great point. And I'm going to take it in a, in a slightly different direction in terms of social connection. So I've read a number of news articles saying that the benefits of social connection outweigh the risks of alcohol consumption. But the two are really independent risk factors. Like there's no doubt that alcohol can facilitate social connection and that the social aspect is very important for a lot of people. But you wouldn't suggest someone smoke to connect with others, which was certainly the case back when I was in my 20s. I used to work in restaurants and go out back to smoke to hang out with the coworkers. But now the idea that you would smoke to connect with people seems ludicrous. But we now know that actually social connection is one of the most, if not the most important variable in health and well-being. There's the Harvard study of adult development. There's a great TED talk called What Makes a Good Life. And there's, it now has 45 million views, I noticed this morning, lessons from the longest study on happiness. But what that study has found is actually that 
uh, social connection, the number and quality of your relationships is not only the biggest predictor of well-being, but it's also one of the biggest predictors of longevity. And so the fact that social connection is important is undeniable. You may have heard of Dr. Vivek Murthy, who's the Surgeon General in the U.S., and he's talked a lot about the toll, both mental and physical, of loneliness, the increased risk of heart disease, stroke, and dementia. But these are two different variables. So we don't want people to be lonely, but it's a bit absurd to say that you should drink alcohol to ward off loneliness. If you don't follow these new guidelines, does that make you a problem drinker? No. So these are, you know, two different elements. So problem drinking or, you know, what would colloquially be called a problem drinker is now what's called a substance use disorder. And so a substance use disorder is a diagnosable mental illness. It's, it comes from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, where that means that you have a problematic pattern of alcohol use that leads to impairment or distress. So it has to impair your life in some kind of way. And so some of the criteria that go into that are some of the ones that you might have heard of, like tolerance or needing more and more of that thing to get the desired effect. So do you need to drink more than you used to? Withdrawal. So do you feel withdrawal symptoms when you stop drinking? So not just what we would think of as physical withdrawal symptoms, but are you a little cagey? Like, are you feeling like, um, you know, you're, you're a little bit shaky, you're a little bit dehydrated? You know, questions like, do you drink more than you mean to? Do you want to stop, but you can't? Is drinking taking over your life? Is drinking getting in the way of your day-to-day activities? So these are more of the things that, or the questions that we would look at that are related to having an alcohol use disorder versus these guidelines, which are more related to health conditions. It's interesting because, I mean, you and I know each other, we work together. I think before there was always this sense that, you know, alcoholism is something that you need to feel deep shame about. Oh, that that family member, oh, they're an alcoholic. And there seems to be a big shift in the way that alcohol use is being treated. And in your work as a clinical director at Alavita, you and your coaches offer what's called non-judgmental care for people who are struggling with substance use. What does that look like? So it means taking a biopsychosocial approach. And I'll explain what that means because you'll often hear addiction talked about as a disease. And there are undoubtedly biological components. There's genetic components. There's changes in neurophysiology. But thinking about sort of alcoholism or alcohol use disorder or addiction as a disease is reductionistic because there are also a lot of psychological factors at work. I mean, we know that Adverse childhood experiences are common in people with substance use disorders. So I I don't know if you've heard of the, I I know you have heard of the ACEs. So the adverse child experiences is basically, um, for anyone who's listening, childhood experiences of abuse and neglect, which could include things like not feeling loved or being the child of divorce. And we know that if you have an, an ACE score of four or more, it actually increases the risk of an alcohol use disorder by 700%. And People who have an ACE score, even an ACE score of one versus those with a zero, are two to four times more likely to use alcohol or other drugs and to start at a younger age. So these are all really important components. You may have also heard of, you know, Gabor Mate is really big in the addiction space, and he's written on the 
impact of attachment, addiction, and trauma quite extensively. And all of this to say that substance use is generally a way to regulate mood, to not feel uncomfortable emotions. So if you think about it in that way, we're all in the same boat and we all use different ways to manage our mood. Maybe that's with food, maybe that's with social media, maybe that's with pornography or Netflix. So to be really non-judgmental, you can't have a fundamental belief that someone struggling with a substance use issue is different from you. We're all just trying to find a sense of peace and well-being. I mean, adult life is tough and we're all just trying to find ways to cope. Why has addiction and substance use been something that you've decided to focus on in your work in the mental health field? Well, Marianne, we all study our own pathology. (laughs) I mean, I grew up in the restaurant industry. I worked in the restaurant industry for 20 years where substance use was rampant. You know, both my parents, my father used to sort of drink beer all day. He was not a, you know, he was never someone that would be considered an, an alcoholic, but Certainly, it was a, a part of the of a common everyday practice, and I think we're really organically drawn to topics that are relatable. So I became really curious about addiction. I mean, it's a fascinating field that really hits on the crux and intersection of human life. I mean, it's got you know connection and coping and neurobiology and joy and libidinous desires and trauma and control and loss of control and escape and pain and values. And I've really found that people who struggle with addiction tend to be more sensitive, sort of more textured. Uh, and the sensitivity is often what leads to wanting to escape. So I think for me, being able to put words and understanding to some of my own experiences has been incredibly healing. You work in a field where you were working with people who are experiencing, you know, deep pain. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? I feel like I should probably go to a to a qualitative, lovely narrative here. But the the reality of the science, so we tend to think of addiction as chronic and progressive, and we've actually been fed that information quite ubiquitously. But if you look at longitudinal studies, if you look at the National Epidemiological Catchment Area Study, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism Study, and this Harvard Longitudinal Study, most people actually recover from addiction. We tend to only see the most severe cases. And so I see people get better all the time. I see people change their relationship with substances all the time and start to live a life for them that is more aligned with their values and to be able to have more connection and fulfillment through every area of their life. And that provides a lot of hope. Dr. Terry Lynn McKay, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much, Ryan. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.